Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il, for making this class happen. Okay, everybody, good morning. Um, we were focused on Spinoza last week. Um, I know that there's at least one question hanging that somebody wants to clarify. We're going to get to it in a second, but just to get the big picture, I want to answer this question and actually use it to um, set up a framework for the next phase of the class. Uh, then we need to lay the groundwork for Hasidut. In that, we'll look at one of the last gasps of Sabbateanism in in uh, Central Europe, in Eastern Europe, which is the Frankist movement. Uh, and then we'll introduce the person of uh, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, right? The, the holy Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidut. And that will probably be enough for today, I imagine. My goal for the remaining classes, which I've, I'm not mistaken, there are three, um, is to, to introduce Hasidut, probably do this and one more class, because you know, there's a difference between the personality of the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic movement which um, emerged in his wake, and then to shift back to Western Europe um, and, and begin speaking about the Enlightenment, um, and the Berlin Enlightenment, Moses Mendelssohn. And I think that we can honestly say, if we get there, that we have reached modernity. We've left early modernity, even though this class, of course, was, of course, about modernity. Better to at least have one toe than not at all. So that's the plan. Um, only three more until Pesach break. Um, just to give the full picture that uh, the Omer series is always its own standalone. Um, I'm going to do for, I'm going to do a series of five classes on um, Zionist thinkers, the, the, the foundation of Zionism, um, sort of from the religious early religious Zionist perspective of say Rav Kalisher to uh, Moshe Hess and the relationship between Zionism and socialism, and then all the way through some more classic ones. Whenever the Omer falls out, I after Pesach. Before Shavuot. Um, it's a five-week series. Um, you have to look. You, they're going to publish it soon. And then just so people have the big, big picture, I just keep going. That's, that's my thing. I like it. Wherever, wherever we stop, we'll pick up there again and, and until we get to Mashiach. Elul, they generally ask me to do something connected to Elul. That's true. Elul will probably be, once again, something around Chuva or, I don't know. Whenever we pick up the regular scheduled program. Yeah, but... But, but at this pace, my, my guess is that history will actually stay ahead of us. So I'll always have more to teach. All right, guys, so we got ready? So Avram, you had a question that, that you wanted to ask, which is actually a good introduction to where we're headed. So go for it. Okay, so we've associated Spinoza with pantheism, even though it was not actually defined until about 20 years after he died. The word wasn't coined, yeah. Right, okay. So I, I have a definition here. Documents identify as God with the universe, regards the universe as a manifestation of God. I don't really understand what pantheism is. Because if it is nature, is God, and God is nature, like where, where does God fit into pantheism? So, so in order to answer it, I think what I want to do, because it's going to serve our purposes well for understanding both the rise of Hasidut, um, ultimately the struggles of the early Berlin Enlightenment to try to maintain a relationship to traditional Judaism, and then sort of where everything goes from there to our messy postmodern world today, is let's make some clear distinction between deism, theism, and pantheism. 
These are terms I threw around last week. Uh, I think they bear some repetition. Um, so what I want to do is, first of all, theism. That is not going to help me. Um, it's okay. Um, let's try it again. First of all, theism. Right? Uh, the, the key transcend, no, that's right, transcendent God. The, one of the key principles of a theist worldview is that there's a transcendent God, that God exists beyond world, right? The, and, and therefore, the gap between God and world is bridged by revelation in text and by miracle in history, right? But its key is that there's, there is somehow a gap, meaning not that there isn't also a, what we would call, imminent presence of God, right? We're in the midst of the book of Shemot right now in the Parsha, right? Splitting of the Red Sea, ten plagues, Sinai, very imminent God. But the, one of the reasons, Sinai in particular, if you read closely, and it's worth it to read closely, that whole section of the book of Shemot, aside from the drama, right, that they saw the voices and heard the lights and all those wonderful things, you'll notice the confusion in the flow of text. Right? Either you can say deliberately from the divine perspective or an editorial decision made at another point, it's, it's chopped up to confuse the reader. You get this sense that they're running you back and forth and spinning you around and around you so that you can't really comprehend what is happening. Because what's happening is a crossing, in the mind of a theist, is a crossing of the unbridgeable gap between creator and created. And, and, and that's like the great mystery of all theist positions, which is that how could you have a transcendent, infinite, perfect, all-knowing, fill-in-the-blank God who somehow engages in relationship with a limited, imperfect, messy creation, right? So, so the, just to get all the pieces on the board here, um, it's also, I think, an important element, at least of Western theist notions, of a redemptive story, right? Creation has a story. It's going somewhere. This was, in Western culture, the introduction of Jewish thought, Israelite thought, the idea that there is a beginning and a trajectory and then an end, let it be soon, let it be now, to the process of creation, right? And, and that's going to come up again for us quite strongly in Hasidut, right? And for Am Yisrael in particular, that, that um, morality is a product of divine relationship. And therefore, actions matter on a cosmic scale. You understand what I'm saying? You know, it's, you don't have to reject what, what we'll see, which is um, natural law, right? And because half the Torah is, is uh, you know, when, when Parsha Mishpatim that we just read last week is full of Mishpatim. There are things that, as the sages say, if God hadn't commanded us to do them, you would figure them out hopefully. Anyway, don't steal from your neighbor, don't murder, right? Social structure, what later the deists will call natural law. But you probably, no matter how hard you thought about it, wouldn't come up with the notion that you can't mix wool and linen. And that's an easy one, relatively speaking. Or purifying the dead by burning a red heifer, right? That there's some element 
of divine law. And morality, we could ask questions whether that plays into morality or not. But the key here is that actions matter on a cosmic scale, that it's not just a reflection of natural law, meaning here's the rule book, right? What goes up must comes down, so therefore if you jump off the cliff, you're going to hurt yourself, right? But it's also, I want you to do this because it matters. It's somehow pushing toward redemption. We saw already in the Sabbatean revolt how that can go off the rails. And we're going to see once again what the Hasidut manages to do, how they manage to sort of um, reframe this notion and maintain its power and I keep telling you again and again and again, as parents, friends, educators, that is the only battle at this point that's worth fighting. Teaching people that their actions matter. And you'd think it would be obvious, but I've got news for you. It's not to a lot of people. Um, right? And you'll notice it's, it's, it's tied to this notion of a story, a redemptive story. Your actions matter because they're pushing the process along. Um, last and certainly, oh, uh, by the way, a, a corollary of that is that reason is not enough. Like I said, you wouldn't reason your way into thinking that it matters whether you mix milk or meat, or frankly, that uh, a relatively small, say, dunam and a half of land in the middle of downtown Jerusalem is the place where heaven and earth meet. That's not a reasonable process, right? And that's going to matter again when we get to the contrast with deism. And, and finally, therefore, religious authority resides in a professional knowledge elite. Right? Once you have revealed texts, uh, you know, commandedness, etc., or just religion in general, it's not a uniquely Jewish thing, that religious authority is going to reside in a knowledge elite, whether it's prophets, rabbis, priests, you understand, that if there is something, revelation, miracle, a story that bridges the gap between creator and created, that gap will be administered. Now, you might have an egalitarian sort of a momentum, which you do get within Judaism, the, the knowledge revolution, education as an organizing principle in the hands of the sages. Ultimately, I don't want people asking me questions. I want them knowledgeable enough to answer their own, hopefully, right? But nevertheless, that's going to become important for our story as well. So you guys got that? That, that theism, which traditional Judaism belongs to theism, right? There's a trend. Ultimately, God is transcendent. You can't know. But in God's grace, incomprehensible as it is, there was that gap was bridged through revelation and is an ongoing miraculous bridge as well. God tinkers with history, right? There, therefore, is a redemptive story, and within that, the human element of that redemptive story is what we call morality as established by the divine relationship for us, Torah, and history. And critical, then, that your actions matter, mitzvot, on a cosmic scale, not just the natural law that, you know, there are consequences to all actions. And, therefore, reason is an insufficient tool for negotiating the divine relationship. It's necessary but insufficient, right? It's not irrelevant. Um, and last but not least, we got rabbis, meaning there is, a, there, is a, there is a clerical, religious authority, knowledge elite, even if the structures of education are meant to soften and perhaps undermine that. That's a good working definition. Okay, next piece, deism, right? Deism in our story, emerged out of the scientific revolution. This tension that various European thinkers began to feel between the Christianity that they'd received, which is a theist standpoint in every respect, and their sort of um, release, their release, their uh, reliance on reason. 
right, in their sense that actually their reason was the real tool of knowing the world. Furthermore, the contradictions they began to see in the traditional narratives of Christianity. We spoke about Joshua and the sun standing still and how the observational astronomers of you know, Tycho Brahe and Kepler said, no, sorry, the world doesn't work that way. And how do you resolve that? So one of the things that deism will say is it still believes in a transcendent God. Let's be consistent with our coloring here. We're still in a transcendent God. But that bridge is only, that gap is only bridged through, through creation. Even though there are many stripes of deists, if we're just going to give with a basic definition, right? The deist, this is the watchmaker god, right? Who wound up creation, walked away, watchmaker god, watchmaker god, right? Who created the world, wound it up, and walked away. Therefore, ongoing revelation or miracle are not relevant. No prophecy, no Therefore, no prophecy. No Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now again, if you pin the average deist to the wall and you start asking them difficult questions, many of them are Christians and they'll hem and haw. This is a big debate, by the way, in American historiography, you should know. It's a big debate even today. Were the founding fathers of America Christians or were they deists? And that actually matters to a lot of people because it's a question of whether America is essentially a Christian country or no, they just wore this sort of garb of their time, but really they were deists and deism slides quickly into atheism or at least agnosticism. So like, I'm not going to get into it now, but you'd know it's a live debate, even now. Um, for our purposes, we're going to present each in their extreme to understand them. No revelation, no miracles, right? This is ultimately Aristotle's God, the prime mover, right? Now you can see the sort of consequences which will flow from this. There's no, therefore, morality is guided by natural law. God built a, a rational world. Therefore, this is why natural law plays such an important role in the Enlightenment thinkers. And it's important because you need some founding basis for morality. Notice, natural law is a theological assertion for them. You understand? They still believe in a transcendent creator. There was just no subsequent revelation. But where do you get at natural law? What's your tool for knowing it? Reason. Right? And that's, of course, why they will want to crown reason supreme, you know, the French Revolution. You don't have to kill God. You make God irrelevant. Yeah. They don't. The deists don't deal shotness because the deists don't believe in the Torah. There are very few Jewish deists at this point. Um, this is not so much of the Jewish story at this point as it is part of the context culturally. There will be. By the way, deism will creep into what movement in Judaism? Into the reform movement. Me, well, in our story, will, meaning we're, 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 the reform is not yet. right? We can get into the confusing time flow thing. Reconstructionists as well. I mean, actually, uh, you know, Reverend Mordecai Kaplan actually has consistent deist thoughts that he you know, presents. But... But um, the, the other element here, which is critical to understand, is that this is an anti-clerical movement. Anti-clerical, because there is a notion that once upon a time there was pure reason religion, and the priests came along 
and in their power-hungry sort of uh, sociology, mucked it all up. Right? And, and so now they're mostly fighting the church, because they are mostly European Christian thinkers in, at this phase of our story. But it has an anti-clerical stance sort of perforce, because it rejects, I mean, you know, reason is available to everyone, right? Ha, ha, ha. Um, they, it, but that's its posture. Right, purports to be universal, therefore there is no you know, sort of like uh, priesthood. It's replaced, of course, by the cult of the intellect, which has its own sort of priest-like elements. And, and, and by the way, you can see where this will go once this assumption that there was a God who made the world, and therefore through reason I can derive natural law, and that's the foundation of morality, once that element, which is a, it's still a thin narrative, but it's a narrative nonetheless, once that falls out and you end up with a world which simply evolved on its own, what's your basis for morality? So it, it becomes difficult to support. Now, you, you have to make a distinction between philosophy and sociology. And philosophically, it becomes difficult to support. Sociologically, it, there's, you guys already said, first of all, it's a utilitarian. I heard the whatever works. Of course, but whatever works for who, at what point, still, it's like whatever works is not always. The other one is power has always been an option for basis of morality. You know, might makes right sounds crude, but it's still probably the most widely spread and functional form of, of uh, a moral discourse in humanity. And then you get various... Um, uh, postmodern moral stances of, of um, sort of like, I'm okay, you're okay, you know, like we, we create a society in which everybody should be able to do or be whatever they want to the extent that you think that that's possible, you know, and that's kind of where Western society is at in those three right now in very fuzzy ways. Okay, so deism, and particularly the anti-clerical piece is going to be important for us. Yeah, Marsh. Absolutely. First of all, I'm, I'm showing these as if they were s completely separate, just to try to understand the definitions. But you're absolutely correct that there is healthy overlap here. We've all the way back to Rav Sajagon, we've been having a discussion about how reason and revelation are two paths to the same truth, right? And since there are things that can't be understood, then we'll, we'll sort of rely on revelation for those things. At the same time, Rav Sajagon says that the obligation is to use one's reason to clarify revelation. It's a belief that revelation is eminently reasonable. Or as Rav Shlomo Aviner, who's a teacher today in Israel, will tell you, God would never command something which the intellect could not grasp. Or, no, sorry, which, which contradicts the intellect. It might command things which the intellect qu cannot grasp. And that's why you could give a definition of faith at the obligation to use your reason right up until it's no longer the adequate tool for the job at hand. Right? That's a, it's a complex dynamic which is going to lead us to the next piece. But you are correct, the, 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 the notion of the transcendent God and the natural law will be present in traditional Judaism as well. Good, we got a little grasp of deism. This is the wave that Europe's riding, which will bring Europe into secular culture, right? Even though, to this day, Christianity is still alive and well. This is classic Orthodox Judaism, even today, although it's been colored by the next piece 
which is pantheism. Pantheism is... Oh, Islam, sure, yeah, I'm sorry. We just, they haven't been such a part of our story lately, but absolutely Islam is a theist posture par excellence. It's much more similar to Judaism, by the way, than Christianity in its tension between deism and theism because it has a history of jurisprudence. And that's, by the way, where, where the, the, the sort of tension between reason and revelation will always find its most rich articulation is when you have a, uh, a history of jurisprudence. When you're actually adjudicating law and you're exposed to bodies of law which are natural law-based, and you're trying to figure out what is actually just, natural law is a very strong force. It's a very strong force internally within the Torah. It's a very strong force, you know, culturally. Yeah, but thank you for that point. So, okay, last is, actually, we're technically not last. We're, we'll mention one, a fourth unmentioned one yet. But pantheism is this notion of an imminent God. This was where we met Spinoza, perhaps. I mean, certainly where he was labeled, but perhaps where we met him. Imminent God, right? Spinoza's famous statement, God or nature. That there is no gap. Right? There's no transcendent God who, who is ungraspable beyond, because there is no beyond. There only is, is. Right? And, and therefore, the consequences are quite clear. If there's no gap, there's no relationship. Always remember that. All relationships are premised on separation. It's an irony which is often missed because we think of relationships as an act of togetherness. But, you know, you don't have a relationship with your foot, except for my knee right now. It's getting better, but we're still trying to renegotiate the integration, right? No, you understand you have a relationship with other. And therefore, separation is a necessary, necessary precursor for all relationships. That's why we saw with the Arizal back in the 16th century, the great myth that he founded sort of mystic, modern mystic Jewish thought on is that act of tzimtzum, of God's withdrawal to create nothingness that would allow for a creation that's in relationship to creator. Remember that, because when we get, not this class, but next, to the great breakdown between the Hasidim and their opponents in Europe, it will actually be the question of whether the Rizal really meant it that will hinge on their philosophical difference, aside from the sociological ones, right? Did God really withdraw? Are we really in a fully theist environment, which is, which is crossed only by revelation and miracle? Or is God always there everywhere? In which case, we're a little bit more in a pantheist sense. You understand? So, so, so pantheism says there is only God. You can't have a relationship to something which you're part of. Right? So therefore, the strict pantheism, there's no revelation, there's no miracle, because there's no God as a character that interacts with creation. Right? And, and in Spinoza's version in particular, it's completely deterministic. There only is what God wills, because God is reality. And therefore, action per se doesn't matter. Only reason matters. Only clarifying the proper understanding of the world and aligning one's actions with what must be is an act of morality. Everything else, emotion, imagination, is just clouding. Well, I mean, strictly speaking, Spinoza, when he looks at the Bible, says this is a, a, a psycho-emotive attempt to control people. Which may be useful, he says, and let's remember that. He doesn't dismiss the Bible as a book of political and cultural utility. 
It's just not a source of philosophical truth. Because there's no God that writes. There's no revealed act. There's humanity that, through its own understanding, taps into deeper psycho-emotive forces and is able to tell stories that can control people, maybe to their good, because Spinoza says the prophets were, were good moral instructors, but they weren't revealers of the divine, because the divine doesn't reveal. Just the pantheist, there is no God that speaks. There is only world. No commandments, no narrative, no creation. There only is. That's what I meant. Right? This is not your mainstream Jewish thought. How does Kashrut go into it? Culture. Yes. Uh, so culture is both product of and producer of these things. Meaning a, a strict theist will tell you that culture is a product of or a cross current, but God gave us the Bible or God gave us the Quran or God gave us what, you know, right? A, the more sociological view will say that even if I'm a theist, the very fact that the Bible is in a specific language, which itself is a product of a culture, and the way in which we practice the Bible and understand its stories happen in a cultural context means that there's a, a culture is a producer of this as well. You understand the there's, a, there's both sides to the coin. Okay, I don't want to go too far because this is a setup for the flow of history. Yeah, Joanna. I don't want to go there right now. The existentialist, uh, the, the God is not relevant. Spinoza believes in God. He believes in, the, in, in an absolute. Right? Uh, uh, the, the existentialists take a next step. They, they're sort of an outgrowth of here, which is that this whole notion of God is essentially psycho-emotional thumb-sucking. And that mean, and, and meaning, only, meaning only exists insofar as humanity creates it. Um, okay. So, okay. So, this may be a little bit abstract for some people, but I think it's going to be important for understanding. These are like, this is the big conflict of modernity. And Hasidut is going to try to resolve a few of the tensions in this, so I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. Oh, we're not going to go there. It's just going to confuse people. I decided I changed my mind midway. It's just going to confuse people, but I think it's the solution to it all. But you can, you can find me later and ask me. Okay. Good. Back in the flow of history. So, can I move? Sure. Um, so, we've got like a couple of threads going here. Uh, we've, we've spent a lot of our time up in Amsterdam. Spinoza was kind of the sort of end of that story, as I pointed out. Although, of course, it doesn't end. We're going to have to come back to it at some point or another. Um, but then we have Western Europe, which really, properly speaking, we're going to treat in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and, and really where I want to turn to now is, is Eastern Europe. I mean, Poland at this point, it's still Poland. Poland-Lithuania, technically, is its term. Um, largest state in Europe at this point, even though, I mean, state may be a bit of anachronism. Largest kingdom in Europe. It combines much of present-day Central and Eastern Europe um, and a good chunk of Northern Europe and Lithuania as well. Um, and by the end of today's story, just to give you a sense, in 1764, there's a census 
within Poland and Lithuania, and there's three quarters of a million Jews living there. This is the turning point at which the majority of the Jews of the world, if they don't actually live in Poland, they, trans their, trans they trace their ancestry through there. So it's a critical period of sort of a uh, uh, gravitational shift to Polish Jewish culture becoming the center of gravity for world Jewish culture. Um, what I want to do is, is comment on something which is actually relevant to both Western and Central Europe, I'm sorry, Western and Eastern Europe, um, and, but then we're really going to take off with, uh, with Eastern Europe. And that is that, that um, we saw the Chmielnitsky massacres, right? And, and together with this, the end of the Thirty Years' War, which in, uh, the number we put on that was 1648, if you recall. That, that there was massive bloodshed, sort of cultural, social chaos. By the way, there's a whole other decade of that in Eastern Europe with the Russian and Swedish invasions. It's like it didn't stop, right? But nevertheless, the process that we've been looking at is a process of reconstruction, right? Basically, there was nowhere for the refugees to go but home, right? And, and even though oftentimes it meant that they would literally go back and reopen the tavern with the blood stains on the floor, which is an image I would keep with you in terms of understanding a lot of the next sort of couple hundred years of, of Polish Jewish history, that they lived steeped in the suffering of the past. As I pointed out to you, this image from Evan, uh, uh, from uh, Yevena Mitsula, from uh, Rabbi Nathan Hanover's book, that, that sort of finished this martyrology vision that claimed that 200,000 Jews died in Poland. Even though the numbers don't hold up, right, the, the sort of cultural conception of a third destruction is the context going forward. You know, you're going to add to that that as the 18th century gets going, the socioeconomic status of Polish Jewry in particular is going to begin to descend. What happens, just for the history buffs out there, is in 1697, um, the, the Saxon house gains control over the Polish monarchy. Saxony is, a, is one of the German states, right? And that's really the end of the Polish monarchy, meaning they're there for almost 100 years. But at the end of that will be the progressive partitions of Poland, where Poland becomes the sort of uh, nice, now you don't state of Europe, basically until post-World War II. Um, the, the, and that rise of the Saxon states is bad news for the Jews. So in 1697, the uh, German descent house of the Saxons ascend the, the throne of Poland. Bad news to the Jews, why? Because if you recall, the classic Polish, no, no, not nobility, sorry, kingship had granted repeated charters to Polish Jewry basically since the 13th century. The Jews had a, a heavily protected status originally because of the economic benefits that they offered. In addition to that, economic benefits was what we would today call a general liberalism that the Poles had toward the Jews. And then we saw in the last 100 years the very important specific socioeconomic role that the Jews played as managers of the large Polish estates in eastern Poland. As Polish state expanded into what we think of as Ukraine today and then north into Lithuania, right, the Jews now play not just a general economic advantage, but the very specific economic role of estate managers. Everything from the guy who controls the liquor trade to the overall manager who may have 400 other Jews working under him in various capacities. Yep. In 1764. 
how many Jews in the world at that point? I don't know, but but um, this is said. No, no, not even nearly. This is that's probably about half. Probably close to half. Yeah, probably. I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, that's a, that's a much longer discussion. But for us, the reason I gave you that number, first of all, is because it actually exists, which is fun. They did a census in 1764. Although, by the way, the assumption is that it's about 20% too low because a lot of people were avoiding the tax rolls. Um, but, but just to give you a sense that, that, that most Jews of European descent think of Poland, Polish Jewry, as, like, as what it is to be Jewish. Right? This is it's in the mid to late 18th century that that begins to become a reality. Um, Close to, I think it's, it could be close to half. I'll have to check it. Um, but so this rise of the Saxon monarchy, bottom line, they, they withdraw the tolerant charters that have been granted to the Jews, even though they can't overturn the uh, sort of socioeconomic status, and therefore there's still power. But what does it mean practically? Taxation. The Jews become basically the cash cow of the 18th century um, they, because the Polish parliament, what's known as the Sejm, Right, will block every attempt by this new German king, who is technically king of Poland, but he, they see him as German, to tax the nobility and the church. Right, so who's left? The Jews and the townspeople. Townspeople don't have so much money. The Jews are still the liquid factor in European economy at this point. So it's 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 bad news for the Jews, and it goes hand in hand with a progression that we traced a little bit of its roots earlier in both, you know, the German states and in Poland, which is this rise of the court Jews, right? As the kings of Europe killed each other through the 17th and 18th century, the, the power of liquidity became a definitive power. What's liquidity? Cash. Because if you want to wage war, you've got to be able to pay your troops and you've got to be able to move goods quickly, right? And the ability of the Jews with their financial connections from the Netherlands through you know, Germany into the, you know, the breadbasket of Ukraine, Plus the fact that historically over the last 200 years, the Jews, any wealthy Jew had been pushed out of every avenue other than money lending and the large-scale commodities market, as we call it, right? Put, positioned them perfectly, basically, to become the facilitators of war throughout Europe. And this is where this institution of the court Jew, right, the Hofjuden house Jew came from. And, and you know, the, if you were a Jew in one of the German states, or in one of the larger Polish, you know, land leases, right, that you had an ability through your, your capacity to marshal capital and to move goods to serve your master well, whether your master was going for war, in more, more common in the German states, or whether your master was just looking to make a lot of money, which was more common in the, in the sort of Polish landholders. And what's even more important for our story is that your master didn't even have to pay you in cash. You know what they could do? They could grant tolerance to other Jews. Right? It, was, it was a very important piece is that oftentimes these, these uh, sort of court factors, court Jews, Haufjuden, house Jews, right? the payment that they received, obviously they were making money, let's face it. Anybody who's moving that kind of cash and, and those kind of goods, particularly in wartime, is making money. But they weren't necessarily receiving direct monetary benefits from their noble masters. Oftentimes what they were receiving was a tolerant treatment of their fellow Jews. And this is the model of, of leadership, which is known as a shtadlan. People are familiar with that phrase, um, shtadlan. Shtad, wait, shtad, shtad. Why can't I spell it? Up? 
Stad Lund. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's Stad Lund. Well, it, my assumption, I didn't do the research, my assumption is that it's a Yiddish corruption of the Hebrew word Lishtadel. Right? Lishtadel is to strive. Right? They're machers. They're the guys that are trying to do. Right? What do you do? I provide. Right? That's what they do. We provide. What's that? Oh, Shad is all city, so it could be from that as well. As opposed to the countryside. Wheeler and dealers. Yeah, these are, you know, the, this is what gives rise to this very day to one of the classic European Jewish anti-Semitic tropes that, that Jews are, are, are simply just machinators. And it was, as was true with most anti-Semitic tropes, there is a historical root to it. Now, granted, it's the culmination of a couple hundred years of oppression, right? But it doesn't mean that it's not a, an expressed reality. You should just know, by the way, in today's political culture in Israel, it's the ultimate insult. Because this is the model of, of um, government in exile. You're Stadlan. You don't have any real power. Your power comes through your ability to manipulate, make deals, perhaps economic power, but real political power belongs to the non-Jews. Therefore, you, you, you got to, like, you know, wheel and deal. Whereas today, nominally, the Zionist historiography says we've left that all behind, and what we do is we are a free people in our own land who bows to world powers like everybody else. But, yeah. Uh, there's probably more to it than that, but I have my notes, the key the economic factor. Well, yes, part of their power is surely in the politics. That's what I said, that they were often paid in the coinage of, of the good treatment of their people. And, but, but that type of political power has no base. And that's the big difference between the Jews as a political factor in most of European history and, say, the church or the nobility. In the end of the day, there's an intrinsic, nobil or an intrinsic legitimacy given to the Polish nobility or the you know, sort of German nobility or the church in those political negotiations. Whereas the Jew exists by, by virtue of the tolerance granted due to service rendered. Therefore, if service is not rendered, tolerance is removed. And sometimes even when service is rendered, tolerance is removed. And society accepts that. It's going to wait until the French Revolution for society to remove that tolerance from the nobility and the church. Yeah? We, serfdom as an institution really died long ago in our story. I mean, it, it, it's not that widespread poverty and, and sort of ag agricultural um, sort of uh, subjugation doesn't exist, but serfdom as an institution was a product of the feudal era, and, and we're, we're well past the feudal era at this point, although in truth it won't fully be removed until the rise of enlightened absolutism in the sort of mid to late 18th century. But, but I, like we're, we're, we're spinning further than I, I want to go right now into this direction. What's important for me to understand is that there's an economic upheaval that's affecting the, what had been the stability of the Jews for several hundred years, particularly in Eastern Europe. 
And, and that upheaval we will speak about in, in, in light and absolutism and, and what role and how that plays into the Jewish question when we get to the Berlin Enlightenment. For now, I want to pick up the thread more to the East. But you just needed to know that this is the period in which court Jews begin to emerge. They're going to play a role later in our story. Back East, where technically they are serving the function of court Jews, but as we saw, we saw they're really the sort of leaseholders. Um, what I'm concerned about is a... Um, is the growing economic disparity which begins to characterize Polish-Jewish society, right? That, that an economic disparity, which of course has always existed, but not to the extent in which it had, and together with that economic disparity, this sort of um, intimate association with the non-Jewish employers will lead many of the wealthier Jews to sort of imitate the actions of Polish nobility. They're gonna build big houses, they're going to uh, wear fancy clothes, They'll even shave. I have a great quote for you here from, um, from the Kava Yashar. The Kava Yashar is a fantastic book in and of itself, but is an important, you know, from the historian's perspective, an important historical document. It's a, um, it was written in 1705, so it puts us nicely in our time period right now. Um, and it was basically a, um, a, a book of, say, popular moral ethical instruction. Combines sort of a, 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 a populist, Kabbalistic perspective with some pretty serious social criticism. And that's an old combination. You can see it in the Zohar as well. Mystics, by and large, tend to be social critics. They don't tend to, um, in the same way, say, the intellectual clerical elite can blend nicely with the economic elite. And this we've seen since the time of the Mishnah, uh, a literal marriage between the intellectual elite in the economic elite, the mystics, for various reasons, which maybe we'll go into with the Baal Shem Tov, have a tendency to stand outside of the economic political sphere, and therefore they tend to be critics. And the Kavishar is a good example. He says, recently, a new fashion has been started and spread far and wide that Jews dress in Gentile clothes. So one cannot tell if a woman is a Jew or not. Jewish women go about in fine clothes, than, finer clothes even than the aristocracy, naked from the throat to their bosom. Violators amongst the people go about in Gentile fashion, even worse, shave their beards, and they teach their children French and other languages. Right, no, well, I mean, you guys, and obviously, the, the dramatic effect, the ooh-ah, but um, it's indicative of a major shift within the leadership of Polish Jewry, which up until this point had been firmly wedded to the norms of rabbinic Judaism, at least for the last, say, five, six hundred years, right? Um, I, have, I have other quotes here um, about the... Uh, the sort of diminishment of the splendor of the Torah in that respect. But basically, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and the social fabric is really starting to tear under the strain. In, in particular, of course, there's no better way to consolidate power when you're wealthy than to do what? Subordinate the courts. That may sound familiar, right? And if you can subordinate the courts, then, of course, then everything you do not only becomes powerful, becomes legal and legitimate in the eyes of everyone. And, and so a saying begins to develop as the rich magnates who rule communal life, begin to buy and, pr and pressure their way into the rabbinate, either having themselves appointed or their favorite son-in-law or just simply somebody who is more amenable to their way of life, a saying will develop amongst the common people that rabbi stands for Roshe Tevot. It's an acronym for Roshe HaBeshochad right? That their leaders judge through bribes. You, know, you think this was a new phenomenon. No, but, but this is going to be important because the the undermining of the rabbinate as a 
um, standard of measure, not just for normative practice, but for the moral fabric, you'll see it, it will begin to attack the whole theist structure altogether. If you can't trust the rabbi, then who can you trust? And then the whole structure of law and religion and morality, which is bound on the story that the rabbi has been telling you since you were a kid, comes into question. And you become much more vulnerable to the two other winds blowing through society. The deism, which is creeping into atheism, which will produce the secular world. That will ultimately find its expression in the so-called Jewish Enlightenment. And this sort of more pantheistic God is always available in a non-negotiated, unmediated fashion, which actually is going to find its home in Hasidut. So, so this is what's going on. And as the um, official rabbinate becomes, again, it's not an overnight phenomenon. There, there are tremendous Talmudic Chachamim all throughout the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. To this day, there are some rabbis you trust. If you want a list, I'll give you one later. Right? Um, the, uh, the, so meaning, don't take these statements as overly black and white. It's the erosion of an institution which has been at the heart of Judaism for 1,500 years. It's not going to just disappear. Right? But at the same time, what, what we get is that almost coming up from below um, is what we would call, I know I call them the lower level Jewish intelligentsia. That's, I must have cut and pasted that from somewhere because never in my life would I use the word intelligentsia. Um, the, um, the, there are three institutions which will begin to define um, a lot of the popular religious life, and they're important for us to understand in, in going forward in Polish Jewry. Number one is the Magid. Right? The Magid, we would say, is like an itinerant, wandering preacher makes their living bringing the Torah to people wherever they are. And as the name says, a Magid is also a storyteller. An institution which is alive and well today. It's very interesting. I don't know if anybody here is involved in, um, in the Jewish renewal movement, but uh, Rav Zalman was, was uh, well known for ordaining certain of his students as a Magid as opposed to as a rabbi. Right? And, and Hasidut, of course, will make quite a bit out of the power of storytelling. I'm a big fan. So there's the Magid. We have the Mochiach. The Mochiach is a rebuker, which you'd think would not be a popular institution, but you'd be wrong. You know, some people want to be told that they're doing wrong. There's something very cathartic in, in having someone stand up and lambasting you for your sins. To this day, for some reason, people like it, right? Um, the, the, you know, I have a, a notes here that there was one, um, uh, Reb Brachia Berach, who was empowered by the Council of the Forelands. Remember, this is this overarching religious institution that really runs the lives of, religious lives of Eastern European Jewry. He was, he was empowered to mend the breaches in the generation, to preach in every town without having recourse to permission from the rabbi or the leader. And that last piece is very important. Because notice, the rabbi and leader, meaning read lay leader, macher, president of the shul, however you think of it, right? They have the power to grant or deny permission to, to preach from, from the bima. You can't just walk into town and gather a crowd. It doesn't work that way. You know, if you're a Magi, they'll let you get away with it because you're going to gather a crowd in the town square. But the Mochiach wants to stand at, at the bima and the shul and have the authority of the Torah behind him to tell you all you're doing wrong. He has a certificate from the Council of the Foreland saying, yeah, this guy, he's speaking truth. Perhaps truth to power, which makes him unpopular in some. But, you know, as long as the Mochiach kept that social critical element, he was very popular. So he would tell the people they needed to repent, but he would then turn on the president of the shul and say, by the way, how much did you spend on that suit? You know, um, so, so there's the Magi, the Mochiach, and then there are the Baalei Shem. 
Right? Baal Hashem literally means the master of a name. Right? The name in this case is the name of God. And it's a long-standing concept within Jewish tradition that the name of God is a source of power. It's not, by the way, just within Jewish tradition. You can find it uh, in basically in, in any religion that has a relationship to language. There's a sense that names and words have an, an all-but-magical, if not downright magical power. And the Baal Shem were basically ranged from everything from like to downright charlatans to, to, um, to uh, sort of like local medicinal healers who, who knew many just sort of natural practices since the institution of medicine, first of all, was not necessarily so trustworthy in the 18th century. And even where it was trustworthy, they weren't, trained doctors weren't so widespread, even amongst the Jews, where they were sort of of an inordinate amount of the population. Um, so from, from charlatans to healers to faith healers to magicians to actually nourishers of the soul, right? People who understood what it was that, 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 the, the, that the power of, of a practical Kabbalah, the sense that, that through the name of God one could manipulate reality, meets a real need within the religious personality. So the Bali Shem were an institution, and I, like I said, they were called that because they claimed this ability to manipulate these holy names, be they names of God, names of angels, even permutations of the Satan and evil spirits. Right? They, they, they were the ones who popularized Kabbalah, and Kabbalah as a general category has a subcategory, which is often called Kabbalah Ma'asit, practical Kabbalah, which is basically magic. And unless you think that that's a new invention, uh, actually it wasn't think so long ago in the DAF that we talked about the ability to create, a, create a, a, another a, a living being and a golem, yeah, and, and, and whether you could count him in a minion. Meaning, this I the, the, the idea, the, the, the idea, um, yeah, but he has to hold a safer turn. Right? Um, the, the, the idea that, 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 that language manipulates reality, of course, in Jewish tradition has its roots where? In the first lines of creation, right? God spoke and brought the world into being. And since we're created also in the image of God, it's not such a huge leap, even just sort of conceptually, to say that our ability to use language shapes the world. And then experientially, well, you, you, I'm sure you've all experienced what the impact that words can have. Sure, there's plenty of it. So we know that um, the, the, the sort of Jews and non-Jews from all walks of life, including the Polish nobility, relied on the Bali Shem in particular for medical reasons. And, and this is a time in history... Right, which really is true in certain communities today, but it's a time in history then that the idea of an amulet as an effective medical tool was widespread, right? That you could write certain names, certain symbols and combinations, wrap it in leather or tin if you were really fancy, you put it on the neck of the baby or the sick person or whomever that you either want to cure or protect, right? End of the day, and, and there's plenty of it in the halakhic literature. You can even wear them on Shabbat if it's been proven efficacious, Right? Um, so the, and we know the term Baal Shem actually exists all the way back from the Gaonic period. So we're talking about the Byzantine period, like 8th, 9th century. The name is already in literature, although it was originally derogatory. Like, oh, these Baal Shem, which it, it had a mixed meaning. But this is folk culture at its best. It's folk culture at its best. And Jewish folk culture in Ashkenazi Jewish folk culture has a very important mantle that these Baal Shem had inherited. Those of us who've been together, I don't remember how long ago we spoke about Hasidic Ashkenaz, but it could be two years, no, maybe it might be, way back in the sort of 12th and 13th century, 11th, 12th, 13th century, in, in classic Ashkenaz, talking about the Rhineland, 
right? There was a movement that's known as the Hasidei Ashkenaz, the, the, you know, the pious ones of Ashkenaz. They were mystical pietists, you know, and, and it's their mantle which is really being inherited by these Bali Shem. At the, at the time, Hasidei Ashkenaz, they, they combined mysticism, which is, this is pre-Kabbalah in the way we're familiar with it, but it's a mysticism that has its roots in, in traditional Judaism. Asceticism, they were very much about sort of the, the reduction of the body, very different than the Hasidim of the, we're familiar with, the, the students of the Baal Shem Tov, as we'll see. In particular, an embrace of God's presence in nature. This is very important, and what I want to do is take a minute here and just talk about this idea of a chassid, right? That, that the first place that a chassid shows up in our tradition is where? Hmm. So it's, Tehillim is quite widespread. It's a biblical term. And, and, and the, in Davin, the Tehillim, uses the term often, right? And so therefore, if you want to understand what a chassid is, that's really a good place to start. In Tehillim, oh, in Psalms, right? And, and the, the word chassid is rooted in what? Right. Chesed, which has two meanings. What? What are they? Chesed is boundless. That's the thing that we need to understand here, which maybe is where you're getting the fact that it might have two, two uh, applications. It's the same meaning. Boundless, when it comes to loving kindness and giving, is great, right up until what? It's not, because, of course, not a, no one other than God can give without boundary. And also, there are places where it perhaps might be inappropriate, right? which is why the Torah actually says that a man who marries his sister, chesed who? That's an act of chesed? Yeah, it's like a little bit too much. You might mean well, because you remember, of course, in the ancient world, an unmarried woman was extremely vulnerable and basically existed outside of the social fabric. So you might think that you're doing an act of kindness, but you've crossed a, a boundary which ought not be crossed. But, but for our purposes, a chassid, a chassid is one who goes beyond. Right? You see in the Mishnah that there, there's something called the chassidim rishonim, Right, the early pious ones. Anybody know in, in, in the Mishnah in particular what those early pious ones in Mishnah and Brachot were known for? Oh, yeah. It doesn't necessarily say they get up early. They, they started early. Because <laughs> the Hasidim later are not going to get up early, but they'll start, right? No, but you're entirely correct. Is that they, they erased the boundaries of time on David. It says that they would sit for an hour before prayer, they would spend an hour in prayer, and they would sit for an hour after prayer. So the Gemara right away says, what? Wait, that's three hours, three times a day, nine hours a day. How are you going to make a living? That's a Mitnagdish question, right? <laughs> the, the, uh, the, no, but it, it, that's in the, indeed the Gemara says, like, well, how will you ever make a living? How are you going to learn Torah? These are not new questions. I mean, jokes aside, you should understand that the, the idea of a personality which is boundless in its devotion to God raises a lot of practical issues, even within religiosity. Like, there are other things you need to do. You need to learn Torah. You need to make a living. You need, you, eh? The answer the Gemara gives is that, well, God will bless them. Basically, because they are a chassid, their Torah will be blessed, and also their Parnassah will be blessed. This is, that, this, is a, this is a living beyond the bounds which even normal religiosity establishes. So that's like the example of, uh, of a chassid in, in the Mishnah. 
going back to these Hasidei Ashkenaz, which was a very important social religious movement um, in, in medieval Europe, left its stamp on Ashkenazi culture to this very day. Their sort of place where they removed the boundaries was in this idea that there was a Ratzon Habore. Right? There's a, some will of the creator, which may not sound particularly strange to you, but the assertion was that we have God's will in Torah and in Halakha, and lo and behold, when they looked at the world, they found huge swaths of the world and of human ex experience which weren't spoken to by the Halakha. So one could assume that the only thing which bridges God's will and human experience are revelation and miracle. Meaning, you want to know what God wants you, look in the Torah. Everything else, feh. Again, that's that Omishnagdish thing, right? The, the, the early Hasidim said, well, we're going to look into nature. We're going to see how, how the animals act. We're going to, to ask the question, what is the Ratzon Habore? What is the will of God in this huge empty space? It has a lot to do with the shifting in European culture of its day and the expanding, you know, what was at the time an early renaissance within European culture, right? And so we're going to see in the students of the Baal Shem Tov, they will continue that path, is that the assumption is, even though we're now five, six hundred years down the line in the development of law, halakha, and Jewish culture, there will still be huge swaths of human experience which have been left a little bit to the wayside. And so a chassid is a person who doesn't make bounds in their relationship with God. And the big accusation that will be leveled at them is that they are therefore pantheists. And, and I'll leave it for now to speak out a little bit more why that is, but I want you to understand that, that a chassid, as, as you point out, can automatically be taken as a good, or that sense of boundlessness is threatening to all normative structures. Right? And that's why Hasidim are not so normal. So um, the, I, I count myself as one of them. Right? Uh, and so some of the Baal Shem, nevertheless, were, were firmly entrenched in sort of the normative religious structure. And, and in our period, the real question is, did they fight heresy? And it wasn't just an abstract question of whether they fought heresy in general. It was specifically a question of whether they fought which heresy? The Sabbatean heresy. Because a wandering preacher who offers mystic salvation in the form of amulets and secret names is an ideal vehicle for spreading Sabbatean doctrines. And so the Baal Shem were looked at, let's just say, somewhat askance by the, the rabbinic establishment, particularly after sort of several scandals had roiled Judaism, European Judaism, um, in the wake of, remember that uh, Shabbat Tzvi himself left the scene in 1676 back then, but we're not done with that story yet. We're not going to tell the story of the Emden Ibshitz controversy now. Maybe we'll get into that in the lead up to Mo Moses Mendelssohn, but rather, I'd rather give it its last major gasp of life in Europe, and that's the story of the Frankists, right? In brief, because it, it plays directly into the story of the rise of the Baal Shem Tov and, and the modern movement of Hasidut. So Jacob Frank was born Jacob Yehuda, sorry, Be Jacob Ben Yehuda Leib, in a small down in, uh, small down in Podolia. Got a question? Did I lose anybody? Okay. In, in a small town in Podolia. Podolia is a, a um, eastern Poland, 
And it's in, important at this point of our story, Eastern Poland at that point, by the way, was of course the Ukraine. It's not East, don't think Eastern Poland today. It's what, what is modern day Ukraine, right? Um, and, and for our story, it's critical to know that, that Podolia was actually captured by the Ottomans, the Turks, Muslim empire, in 1672, and they ruled it for almost 27 years. I have it from 1672 to 1699, meaning it's a cultural border town as well. And that's going to play its role also in the rise of the Valshemtov. But um, so he was born in a small town in 1726, um, the, after it had already been returned to the Poles. Um, and he was a product originally of traditional Jewish society, although it seems many researchers afterwards identify his father as a significant member of the Sabbatean underground in his town. Um, he... He was exposed, oh, by the way, he was later going to boast of his ignorance of Jewish law, but it seems that he was actually hiding some element of his education. He was exposed to Sabbatinism in his home from his early teachers, but finally, really, his story takes off um, when he gets married in 1752. He gets married in 1752, and two major Sabbatean figures serve as the witnesses at his wedding, and later sort of uh, accompany him out on his travels as a merchant, which is very common to do. You get married... You sit at home for six months to a year, and then you take off with a caravan to try to make a living for another six months. It was a common practice amongst probably all Europeans, but certainly European Jews at the time. Um, and it seems at this point in, 16, in 1752, sorry, he was in, initiated into the mysteries of the faith. As he traveled, his reputation grew. He was apparently quite a charismatic figure. Um, his reputation and therefore his following, his first brush with actual scandal was in 1756, when it was the first time that he was accused of conducting orgiastic rituals um, under sort of the guise of having claimed to be the spiritual inheritor of Shabtai Tzvi, right? Remember I told you Shabtai Tzvi, his Masim Zarim, these strange actions, and this philosophy of Matir Isurim, right, the one who permits the forbidden. But I told you it's hard to know what Shabtai Tzvi himself actually did because most of the way in which he's characterized is colored by the Frankists. The Frankers are the one that we have decent documentary evidence. They were engaged in very strange and certainly non-normative sexual practices, which weren't just orgiastic, but also deliberately embraced the incestual. Yeah. Right. He, he, he was the, the, the spiritual reincarnation that, that Frank himself was. Oh, we've spoken about it before, this, the sense that, that, um, that the, um, the failed Messiah who will return is, is a, is a well-developed trope. Um, also, the sense that, that even death, you have to go all the way into the darkness in order to redeem the last of the sparks. Um, here, though, I'm interested more in the sociological rather than the religious. Um, this this uh, religious orgy didn't end well. Frank managed to escape. His followers, many of them, were imprisoned. Um, the, he managed to escape. He flees to um, the local authorities. Thought he was Turkish because it's a question of where he was born, and what is. And so he manages actually to cross the Turkish frontier. And apparently, a year later, in 1757, officially converts to Islam. His first conversion. Again, following the steps of whom. Shabtai's feet. Here that he say that he meets some of the leaders of the Donme, that that um, hidden sect 
of followers of Shabtai Tzvi who had converted with him from Judaism to, to Islam, but maintained their loyalty to this underground life. It's here that he encounters some of their teachers, absorbs their practices, and continues to declare himself to be now this sort of spiritual inheritor of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, he returns to Poland and enters into immediate conflict with the Council of the Four Lands because they, they, they get wind of him coming. They, they actually employ Rav Yaakov Emden, whose story I'll tell next, probably not next class, but two classes from now. But he's a well-known, fierce opponent of the Sabbateans. He's been, we mentioned him at least once already. I forget what the context was. But, um, but he, has, he is deeply involved both with the Council of Four Lands and a personal crusade against the Sabbateans. It's interesting, by the way, that it's Emden who convinces the Council of Foreland to turn to the Polish Catholic authorities as a, as a source of power to try to suppress this, the Frankist revolt. At this point, Frank has, according to some sources, 2,000 followers, which is quite significant. And if it's not at that large, it's certainly in the hundreds. And you see the ranges from 500 to 2,000. It's a, it's a major threat to the authority of, the, of not only the Forelands as a sort of political force, but you know, nothing proves like success. And as the, the, the difficulty of the Jewish life in Poland economically de declined, plus, as I pointed out to you, there's an erosion of trust in rabbinic authority altogether. And you get this charismatic figure who is permitting the most outrageous practices, which on one hand is frightening, on the other hand is enticing. And I know people have a hard time grasping it, but it appeals to the imagination, this idea that there is, there is something beyond religion, rigid religious law. Furthermore, Frank apparently was a master in taking what had been fairly abstruse, Kabbalistic reasoning of earlier Sabbateans and, and basically creating a whole new mythic imagery. But he wasn't into theology. He was into a very simplistic mythic imagery and really pushed this notion that he was not come to elevate people, but actually to denigrate them to push them all the way down to the depths in order that this last stage of redemption could occur. And yeah, well, I mean, when you see your life going down instead of up, that's an appealing notion, right? So, so Emden actually, Rabbi Emden, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, enlists the help of the Catholic authorities in, in, in order to sort of make an argument, which in many ways is an interesting turning point toward orthodoxy. It's worth it to understand his argument he says that, that um, this Sabbateanism, the Frankists, was a mixture of principles of other religions. He was taking from Islam. He was taking it from Christianity. Soon we'll see that they all convert to Christianity as well, right? Um, and, and, and from Judaism, therefore, it constituted a new religion as such, was forbidden by canon law. It was forbidden by church law. Remember, the church recognizes Judaism as a legitimate religion. Yeah, it's got its problems with Judaism, but the church since Augustine in the, fifth, the fourth century has recognized Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, as a real entity. So Rav Emden basically claims that the only form of Judaism that's been sanctioned by generations of church practice is what we now know as orthodoxy. This is going to have big consequences in the emergence of the relationships between the Orthodox and the Reform movement in another, say, less than 100 years. But anyway, Frank's followers are under attack now from, from Jewish officialdom, the four land, Council of Four Lands, 
they see that the Catholic Church is pretty close to joining the bandwagon, um, and they realize that their only hope is to actually seek protection from the church itself, um, and they claim themselves as anti-Talmudists. They say, no, we are Jews, but we're anti-Talmudists, and it was a big success because the church suddenly smells the opportunity for, for a mass conversion. You get a couple of thousand people, or maybe just a few hundred, whatever, I guess which historian you read, but let's just say hundreds of Jews to publicly convert to Catholicism, that's a big win. And so the, the Frankists use their now protected position with the church, making promises that perhaps they'll convert, perhaps they won't, maybe they're their own movement, this anti-Thomist movement, but they demand a public disputation between themselves and the leaders of the Jewish community. Now, the Council of the Forelands is too smart to bite at the bait, and they manage to avoid that invitation for more than a year, but the, the local bishops are quite insistent, and finally, there is indeed a public dispute which takes place from June 20th to June 28th, 1757, between the Frankists, who, again, are now presenting themselves as the anti-Talmudists, and uh, representatives of the rabbinic class, and the result is a condemnation of the Talmud as worthless and corrupt, and once again, an order that it be burned in the city square. Right? And, and indeed, they searched the homes of the Jews, grab every copy of the Talmud and probably every other book they could, um, and, cart, uh, and, and cart, cartloads of it, and they are in fact destroyed, and at the end of this culminating moment that the Frankists mass convert to Catholicism. Right? And it's, it's a major blow um, it's a major blow to the Jews of Poland at the time, right? And, and, and what's interesting is that there are those who blame the Forelands Council for making it happen because of the act of excommunication. They had excommunicated the Frankists, which was basically cutting them off, and in that left, in the eyes of these critics, no choice but to seek shelter within the church. Just to play out the story of, um, of, uh, of Frank, what? I'm oh, sorry. Uh, 1757 was the dispute. Not long after was the mass conversion. Might have been two years after. Um, and Jacob Frank himself lives on until 1791. He's he got a dicey reputation because even though he converts, he continues in the good Sabbatean practice to keep teaching underground. He continues with some questionable practices. He bounces around from place to place. He eventually declares himself, I think, like a baron or something in one of the German states. His daughter, Eve, is quite popular with uh, Maria Theresa, the, the, the um, empress in, uh, in Vienna. Uh, the, so like, he, he's a public figure. And, and once he dies, there will be amongst many who remember him as a precursor to the Jewish Enlightenment because he broke out of the Jewish ghetto. He broke out of the rabbinic establishment. He was, found favor in the eyes of non-Jewish courts. And there will be strange sort of threads, which we may or may not pick up on as we go forward, of how, how his sort of personality and his perspective play themselves out further in time. Yeah. He wrote his a collection of his works, sure. Yeah. 
Sure, and the fact that your grandfather had a lot of respect for him was a, a lot of that was because of a sense. Once this sort of collective memory of the strange practices had faded, he is remembered as someone who didn't bow to the rabbinic establishment, who managed to live a sort of emancipated lifestyle and attempted to lead the Jews, so to speak, out of the ghetto. That's one of the ways in which he was remembered amongst a good chunk of Polish Jewry um, and, and beyond. Some of his followers fought in the French Revolution. Um, yeah, he dies in 1791. Um, so, but for our story, I want to go back to this, um, this dispute because the Hasidim will later tell a tale that along with the communal rabbis who are watching in horror as this dispute over the Talmud goes against them, was the holy Baal Shem Tov. At this point, according to what chronology you get, either well-established and about at the end of his life or early in his career, the dates when he comes to these things along with the factuality is something we'll speak about momentarily. But I just want you to picture it. That, that the Holy Baal Shem Tov is there, and the Hasidim would later claim that, that when he heard, he heard this prophetic vision, he had a prophetic vision on the Yom Kippur before the dispute of how it would go. And he ran to the shul and he threw himself on the ground in front of the ark and he cried out, Woe for those who wish to remove the Torah from us. How will we go on living scattered amongst the nations without the Torah? Right? Um, and furthermore, the Hasidim added that, the, that Baal Shem Tov wasn't just angry at what, the imminent destruction. He was angry at the Council of Four Lands because they had cut off a limb from Israel and didn't weep in the process. Right? Meaning the act of excommunication in his eyes, and in fact, it seems that the Baal Shem Tov, if indeed he was part of this dispute, tried to prevent an absolute break between them, which one could say is a beautiful thing, and he was a peacemaker trying to sort of hold together the integrity of the Jewish community, but it left the taste in the mouth of establishment Jews that there was a direct link between this new sect of the Hasidim, which was going to sort, shortly emerge, and the Sabbatean movement, something which was not going to serve them well. So I have about 15, 20 minutes. Questions or comments before I introduce the personality of the Baal Shem Tov? Uh, so he probably, so the uh, Jacob plan continued to say that he was the guy who was in the Zion until he died? Well, it went underground. Yeah. Went underground. It, outwardly, he was a practicing Catholic, although he ended up in jail in, in, in 1760 on the heresy charges, and he got out. And it was a rocky road. But, but he, he ceased to publicly proclaim himself as the Messiah. Listen, if history shows us anything about aberrant personalities, they're attractive to a large, not even only he's been there, but they're attractive to a large group of people. Adayomazeh. Adayomazeh. There's something about, about um, a, there's the, the, the charismatic side of an aberrant personality, which is, which is magnetic. Um, other questions or comments? Where did it come from? I think he just adopted it as an anglicization. Yeah, I actually don't have it in my notes, but you're correct. He wasn't born Frank. I mean, if he had a last name at that point, it was probably something German, which is most of the Polish Jews had adopted. I don't have it in my notes, so I can't answer the question. Yeah. 
Yes, we're going to get there. Okay. So, Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer was born in approximately 1700, according to some historians, 1698, 1699. Um, he's also born in a small town in Podolia, a small town similar to um, Jacob Frank, um, which was at that point only beginning to recover from the devastation of the, those Turkish-European wars. Remember, Podolia was, up until 1699, was a, a Turkish province. Um, you know, they tell a story about his birth, that his father, Eliezer, right, was taken captive by the Turks and brought to serve one of the viziers of the sultan himself, and that he was such a great advisor, particularly in his military strategy, that the sultan offered him his daughter in marriage. You know, Eliezer was a little bit too shy to point out that he would never, of course, conclude holy matrimony with a non-Jew, but he revealed this truth to his new wife on their wedding night, who had such a vast respect for his piety that she not only forgave him, but she caused him to be released, and he went home, and that, and that on his journey home, he heard a voice from heaven say that in return for your great piety, you shall give birth to a son who will bring new light to the world. Right? It's beautiful. And the Baal Shem Tov comes from this. I tell you this story um, because when, when it comes to a personality like the Baal Shem Tov, right, some people want to do what I think of historical archaeology. Right? They, they want to say, we have all these documents and legends, and they, let's dig away at them and see if we can get to the truth. Right? And I think there's merit in that. I do believe that, that factuality is an important part of any story. Right? At the same time, the personality, the legend, the myth, actually is probably the best word, the myth of the Baal Shem Tov is the figure who has real impact on the progress of Jewish history. You understand? There's a, there's a dangerous tension in thinking that by doing sort of historical archaeology and getting at the hard facts, we know the truth, when the reality is, is that in his lifetime, the Baal Shem Tov was not so widely known. But the legend which emerges from him will be known by millions, and they will shape their response to him and their behavior on the legend and not on what you might be able to unearth through archaeology. So therefore, a story like that, the other way to say it is that, is that story true? Maybe yes, maybe no, but they don't tell stories like that about me and you. Right? So, so, so therefore, it tells us that we're into a, le a realm of sort of mythic character. So his parents were poor, and they died while he was still young. His life is marked by much hardship, be it for him personally or, as we pointed out, for this entire generation of Polish Jewry. And the only inheritance he received were his father's words on his deathbed, who said to him, Yisrael, my beloved son, remember this as long as you live. God is with you. You need not be afraid of anything. Now, it sounds like simply a beautiful parting message, and indeed it is. But you also have to understand that this becomes a foundation for an entire religious worldview. God is with you. You need not be afraid of anything. And the, the only thing I would add to it is God is with you wherever you are. It's a statement that comes from the Zohar, which the Hasidim will set at the center of their practice, which is late... I, I just, like my mind just skipped a beat. Um, I can't remember the Aramaic. There's nowhere which is empty of God. I don't know wh where my brain just went. But there's nowhere which is empty of God. And this will become a big dispute between the ultimate movement which emerges from his teaching 
and those which oppose it. So the point of mockery is God with you when you're in the bathroom, right? I, I tell you a funny story. Later, descendants of the Baal Shem Tov, well, not physical, spiritual descendants, one of the great students of the students of the Baal Shem Tov is Rev Eliel Eli Melchmi Lezensk and his brother, who? Reb, Reb Zusha. Right? They're the ones who really brought Hasidut proper to Poland. And they tell a story that before they were famous Rebbe's and they were just Hasidim, that they were wandering and they came to a crossroads and a police officer stopped them and they got arrested and they were thrown in jail. And in this jail was full of drunk poles and it smelled and in the corner was a chamber pot. You guys know the story? The corner is a chamber pot and is full of what you would expect a chamber pot to be full of. And they're sitting there and, and Reb Zusha looks at his brother Reb Elimelech. Reb Elimelech was the intellect of the pair. And he sees that Reb Elimelech looks very sad and he's disconnected from God. Reb Zusha says to him, brother, what could be wrong? And Reb Elimelech says back to him, brother, what couldn't be wrong? He's like, it's so foul in here. I can't pray. It's forbidden. I can't learn. It's forbidden. I, I feel so distant from God. Rizusha looks at him, and he begins to laugh. Rabbi Elimelech says, brother, what could possibly be funny? He said, well, listen, brother, I'm not an intellect like you. I don't learn so well. And I'm not so holy like you. I don't, I don't pray so well. But I know that the holy ball of Shem Tov taught us that when you're in a place like this, what God wants for you to do is to do absolutely nothing. So therefore, right now, I'm as connected to God as I could possibly be. <laughs> and the two brothers, suddenly Elimelech's face lights up, and he, they grab each other's hands, and they start to dance around the chamber pot. So meanwhile, all the Poles start complaining, what is going on? These Jews, this whole conversation took place in Yiddish, which they don't understand. And they don't know, but the jailer comes and says, what's going on? They had all these two crazy Jews, they were talking to each other in their gibberish, and then they started to dance around the chamber pot. So the, so the jailer says, oh yeah, I'll show them, and he takes the chamber pot and he pulls it out of the room. <laughs> so, so... There's a lot in that story. There's a lot. It's not just a good story, right? So, so this idea that, that wherever you are, God is with you, right? And so the young boy, young Israel, is an orphan. He seemed to have some promise, but um, a, he, he didn't really fit the traditional mold. The community at this point, the Kahal, was strong enough that any orphan was taken care of. He was given schooling, and they, indeed they tried to place him in school. And, and rumor has it, or legend has it, I should say, that he would study for a few days, and then he would just disappear. And they would find him in the woods, sitting off in a quiet spot. And they knew that he was intelligent and honest. He just didn't fit the mold, right? Um, and nevertheless, his sort of simplicity won over almost everyone else he met. And he he becomes an assistant to the school teacher in a small community close to the city of Brody in western Ukraine. What's his job? His job was to escort children to and from school. Right? Because, of course, at that point, people lived scattered in little you know, the, uh, towns and, and, and maybe single houses. And there was a central school. He would escort them to and from school. And the early legends, which are recorded in what's called Shivchea Besht, right? the praises of the Besht, which we'll speak about in a minute, right? Or legends say that he was um, well-beloved by the children because he would teach them songs and how to praise God as they walked amongst the trees. Next place we find him is as a caretaker in a synagogue, Shamish. Once again, simplest possible employment, separate from society. While everybody else was awake and working, he would sleep and then take care of the shul and sleep. And then at, late at night, he would spend his time in contemplation of God. And it's at this point, according to the stories of the Baal Shem Tov, and maybe I should just explain that the Baal Shem Tov, is, we, he's, his birth is placed around 1700, his death at around 1760. Um, and then there's a book which is published in 1815, so a good 50 plus years after his death, 
called Shivchei Abesht. The praise of the best is, is, is um, Baal Shem Tov. Right? Um, they, they, in, in praise, or the praises, um, or we would translate the legends of the Baal Shem Tov. And in this sense, on one hand, it's the best historical record we have on him. But how much of it is actual archaeological history, facts, dates, names, and places, and how much of it is a legend? People, you know, you go ahead and try to figure it out. People do all kinds of work on it. But what I can tell you for sure is that this is the personality who has the real impact on Polish Jewry. Because it's the, most people did not know him in his lifetime. Most people knew his story. So, so, um, so it's at this point where he's working as the shamash, as the, as the, uh, the caretaker in the synagogue, that um, a, a very important event happens in his life. A strange figure by the name of Reb Adam Balshem appears in the synagogue one night with a package of manuscripts. Now, Adam is a very strange name for a Jew, you should know. At this point, people didn't really use that name, right? Um, but he, he's a Balshem. He's one of these sort of uh, mystic, sort of uh, do-it-yourself rabbis who wanders from town to town. And he claimed that his own father's will had instructed him to deliver these manuscripts to a youth named Yisrael ben Eliezer because they belonged to the root of his soul. And it was from this Reb Adam that Yisrael learns the secrets of the Baal Shem, how to write amulets and, and the sort of very practical elements of Kabbalah. But it also appears that these documents, manuscripts, were the, the encounter, the Baal Shem Tov's first encounter with the writings of the Rizal. Remember the Rizal, right, of uh, Isaac Luria, 1570 to 1572 in Sfat, was a turning point in the development of Jewish mystic thought. We've spoken about him in that respect in many ways, but it is important to understand that there was not a major printing of the writings of the Rizal until after the Baal Shem Tov dies. That most of his writings were exi existed in manuscript and were passed from student to student hand to hand, and it was subject often to bans by institutions like the, four land, the, the Council of the Four Lands, at least until you were of age 40. This popular notion that you're not supposed to learn Kabbalah until age 40 has been reinforced many times ever since the dispute around the Rambam back in the 13th century, back when you were, the problem was learning the Rambam and not learning the Zohar, right? Um, the uh, different issues. Philosophy was the enemy there and not mysticism. This idea that a certain level of maturity also, by the way, a certain level of groundedness within the community is a prerequisite for delving into the inner secrets, be they the philosophical or the mystical or both. But nevertheless, it appears at this point that he acquires the copy of the writings of the Rizal, um, which, like I said, were not so easy to come by. And since I only have a, a few minutes, I think it's worth it to, um, to pause in sort of the story of his life and just to mention a very important shift that the Baal Shem Tov is going to affect in these writings. Remember, last place we saw these writings make an impact was where? The Sabbatean movement. We spoke about how, how, um, how Shabtai Tzvi got his copy of the Zohar and then encountered the different mystic thought coming out of Sabbat and, and basically went off the rails and created this movement, which is still plaguing European Jewry in the mid to late 18th century. Right? So you might think that this is bad news for the Jews, that the Baal Shem Tov has now encountered the same things. But there's a very important shift that the Baal Shem Tov affects. I'll actually just mention it now because we don't really have time to go into it, but it's a good frame to leave us for, for next, is that 
is that the Baal Shem Tov essentially in his teachings affects a shift of scale. He affects a shift of scale. Right? That the Rizal, and certainly the Sabbatean movement after him, was looking to actually bring the Messiah. This idea that the tikkunim, these fixings which could be done, remember this image of lifting up the sparks, right, and redeeming the sparks, that that was something which repaired the relationship between God and creation and therefore could affect redemption, which is why all these Sabbateans went from being students of Shabbat Tzvi to being Sabbatean prophets to thinking that they were the Messiah, right, that they were intoxicated with this power of the redemptive story which said that your actions matter on a cosmic scale, right? The Baal Shem Tov taught his students that the real tikkunim happen in the individual. He shifted the scale from the cosmic to the personal. And in that, he was able to create a popular movement, really the first popular Kabbalistic movement, to the point that to this day, and now he dies in 1760, Right? That's 260 years ago. To this day, the most popular expressions of, of Hasidut are essentially today the self-help elements. See, all, I do it. I mean, you see it all over the world. Right? The practices of Baal Shem Tov for better living. That's not an accident, nor is it some sort of like new agey uh, adaptation, although it can be, but it's not intrinsically. Is actually a direct reflection of the real spiritual evolution that the Baal Shem Tov affected, which was that the, the field of play becomes the human spirit as opposed to the divine drama, which of course are related, right? And that ultimately, as we'll come back to, that of course if the field of play is human experience, that means that God is everywhere. Because wherever you go, God is with you, as his father said to him on his deathbed. So we'll stop there, and we will pick up with a little bit more of his personality and how the, the movement of Hasidut emerges next week. Well, actually, not next week, in two weeks. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.